This is Giant Robot FM, your home of all things mecha, be it giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. We have, we're have we continuing to have very special episodes for you. I think all the episodes we produce are special, but this one borders border on the very special because not only do we have our excellent guest, Megan D, returning, but we are wrapping up our three-part history on Gundam The Origin. Can you believe it? After three episodes and probably... Let's see, carry the one, add the three, six-ish hours probably of recording, maybe seven hours of recording, 15,000 words in our notes document, we will have reached the end of Gundam The Origin. I never thought at the beginning that Gundam The Origin would produce this much history content. Just goes to show you. I mean, it's always wonderful to reach the end of the beginning, right? Right. Hopefully y'all aren't sick of me yet. Of course not. You're slated for many more episodes to come, Megan. (laughs) Oh, yes. And really, this is only part three of a presumable part four whenever we get around to covering Kukuru's Doan, which is really whenever Kukuru's Doan decides to show up on home video or a streaming service. We can only hope. Fingers crossed for this year. I imagine it'll come out in some form this year. But before that, let's do a little intro. PMC, tell the audience hello as you usually do. It's it's thundering where you are, which is great vibes for podcasting if you ask me. Look, it's... It is probably thundering outside, but we're going to have a pleasant, comfy podcast in here. And with us also is Megan D. Megan, you've been with us for five-ish hours now, but we're glad to have you back. And why don't you take a moment to reintroduce yourself or introduce yourself for the first time for those of you who, for whatever reason, went, I know everything about Yasuhiko. I don't need to know about his early life. I've read the manga cover to cover. I know the history like the back of my hand. Don't need to know anything about the manga history. But I could use a refresher on the OVA history, in which case we have an episode for you, my friend. Okay, yes. In case you skipped ahead, or in case you weren't paying attention before, my name is Megan. I have been reviewing manga for 10 years now at my blog, The Manga Test Drive, which is at mangatestdrive.blogspot.com. I have a side blog called Renaissance Jose, where I do longer form reviews and essays. I'm occasionally contributor to Anime Feminist, and... I'm a bit of a know-it-all when it comes to Gundam the original. This one this one is going to be a bit educational for me as well. I know a lot about the manga. I know a lot about the career of Yoshikazu Yasuhiko. Not so much about the OVA itself. So this is going to be educational for me. And we definitely have some fun facts. I knew a bit of the trajectory this history episode would be taking before I started my notes. But in researching it, and there was a surprisingly copious amount to come through, I did learn some fun nuggets, which I will hopefully enjoy sharing with you all. But before we begin, let me give a quick recap of what we covered in the previous two episodes. So episode one covered Yasuhiko. I forgot his name. Yoshikazi Yasuhiko. (laughs) Yasuhiko's early life. We talked about his student days as a student radical, but not too radical. Um, We talked about his early life as early career as an animator at Mushi Pro. We talked about the succession of films that he directed that came out in the 1980s. And as well, you know, some of his TV productions as well. And then we talked about, covered his life in the 90s, talking about his transition to being a full-time mangaka and some of the manga series that he wrote before the year 2000. That's That wrapped up episode one. 
Episode 2 covered the creation and origin story of Gundam The Origin, which is basically years 2000 to 2011. And here we are sitting pretty at 2011-2012 for Episode 3. Megan, did I miss any pertinent facts there? I don't think so. Excellent. What, what I love to hear. All right, so are you two ready to jump into our final part of our history segment? Please take it away. Go for it. All right. As I anticlimactically click on another tab on Google Docs. <laughs> By any reasonable metric, Gundam The Origin was a resounding success. Yoshikazu Yasuhiko dedicated over a decade of his life, 2001 to 2011, to his manga retelling and reimagining of Mobile Suit Gundam. And unlike many of his previous works, it was a hit out of the gate, which I imagine for Yasuhiko was really satisfying. Given this success, it should come as no surprise that Sunrise approached him about an anime adaptation. I imagine when the executives approached Yasuhiko and when Yasuhiko finally said, yes, I'll do it, damn it, I imagine in the back of their minds, they're like, yes, we can make money off a future anime OVA. I imagine stuff like that is always at the back of money people's minds. Well, this is happening in 2006. This would be right around the time they're finishing up work on the uh, Zeta movies, the Zeta movie trilogy for its 20th anniversary. Yeah, I feel like the Sunrise executives are always thinking about when Gundam is having its next five-year anniversary and what premium content they could produce for it. Because it seems like, and we'll talk about it, this episode we'll talk about the 35th anniversary and the 40th anniversary, but they always have premium content timed for it, be it a new OVA or a theatrical release of some kind, be it a recompilation film or a compilation film or a brand new film. So the executive we talked about last time, his name is Takayuki Yoshi. He was then the president of Sunrise. He approached Yasuhiko about midway through origin serialization, so probably 2006 or so, about an anime adaptation. He didn't pressure Yaz. They were both old friends. Their working relationship goes all the way back to the Gundam movies. Yoshi was a producer on all three movies, and he also produced Crusher Joe. So they, uh, they have a history with one another. But he brought it up more casually. Unsurprisingly, Yasuhiko didn't jump at the chance to return to the high stakes and often brutal world of animation. He remembers, quote, I thought people might take me as a fool if I made it as an animation again. End quote. Now, of course, he's referring to Mobile Suit Gundam already being animated, but I imagine he was not too eager to return to the brutal working conditions of producing an animated feature film. And, of course, he's very, very critical of the work he's produced previously, even though many, much of it is stellar work. He is still in that mode in his life where he cannot accept Venus Wars for the gem that it is, and he's still very critical of Arion. Not to mention... Remember, Venus War- I was going to say, in 2006... The anime industry has only just started to get a hang of digipaint. Like, it's finally gotten over that awkward phase. So, I mean, that's an entirely new technology to learn and manage. Yeah, pour one out for the Big O Season 2. Whenever we get around to it, I'm sure we'll have thoughts. But personally, the digipaint stuff, ooh, it's, it, it, it didn't land with me then, and it hasn't aged all that well now. So the idea got thrown on the back burner. Yasuhiko was pretty tepid on it. But as he neared the final chapters of the origin, so as we're getting closer to 2011, and he was finally able to look back and take in the sheer scope of this 10-year undertaking, those conversations came up again. But despite Yoshi's initial enthusiasm, remember Yoshi was the executive at Sunrise, 
There was a lot of trepidation within the studio about possibly insulting insulting Yoshiko Tomino by redoing 0079 without his involvement. Instead, Yasuhiko remembers, quote, the safest landing point for Sunrise was to animate the new part that I added to the manga as that didn't involve Tomino in any way and also wouldn't disrespect his work, end quote. Yasuhiko has opened up recently in interviews and he's basically like, yeah, Tomino can do whatever he wants. He can honestly pitch any idea to Sunrise and they'll animate it. So he has a lot of pull at the company, despite the fact that technically he's freelance. And Megan, correct me if I'm wrong, Yasuhiko is also freelance, right? Yes. And hearing that Tomino basically has carte blanche at Sunrise, like, yeah, that explains Reconquistan G, doesn't it? Like I said two episodes ago, I gotta see that. I, I, I gotta see the, the pooping bit. As as gross <laughs> and as gauche as it is, I gotta check it out. No one needed to see mobile suit pooping. <laughs> but that's not what this <laughs> podcast is about. Shout out to Russell. Not for the mobile suit pooping, <laughs> but I know he's a, uh, I'll say G-Reco apologist. Or fan. I don't want to miss. I don't want to misquote him here. Again, even though Yasuhiko was in open discussions about an anime adaptation, he hadn't yet committed to it. So again, we're roughly 2011 or so. At this point, he was in his early 60s. The last time he worked on an anime production in a foundational capacity was in the late 80s with Venus Wars, which came out in 1989, and that was over 20 years ago. Despite these reservations, he ultimately gave in. Why, you ask? Because Origin was his baby. It was likely that Sunrise, with or without his blessing, was going to animate Origin. Quote, I felt that if my manga was to be adapted into animation, then I wanted to do that. So that is why I accepted the offer from Sunrise. End quote. And as a sometimes creative myself, I can definitely understand that. I do wonder, hypothetically speaking, I think Yasuhiko's reputation precedes him enough that if he put his foot down and said, no, I do not want... Uh, Gundam the Origin animated I think that Sunrise might have not animated it because remember when he said no I do not want Venus Wars released not that it was Sunrise but he's like no Venus Wars will not be released on home video or re-released in theaters he had his way until he ultimately gave in in 2018 or so so there is precedent within the anime industry for moves like this yeah I don't know if it's a if it's a cultural issue or a legal issue but I know when it comes up to the discussion of like uh like you know, video game re-releases and remasters. I've also heard that with regards to things like personnel who've left Square. Mm-hmm. You know, like, why hasn't there been a sequel to this or a re-release of that? And the impression often is that uh, because if if some you know important creative isn't on board, that the company will be reluctant to do it. I haven't looked into it enough to say like, oh, it's because copyright is different, or you know, or, or you know, the laws around works for hire is different or if it's you know again more of a a, a cultural thing uh i don't know i mean it seems maybe you know i'm hesitantly say maybe it's a it's a good thing that the creatives have more say um but of course it would also be trivial to to, uh, invent a situation in which it is a bad thing (laughs) i mean thinking about the video game industry i remember inafune when he left capcom of course he's like the big overseer of the Mega Man franchise, and it took a while for Capcom to release any Mega Man-related content, at least in video game form. So I have a feeling I could kind of see that. It's also very much a thing in the manga world. Uh, Now, obviously, Yasuhiko does not have the same iron-fisted control as someone like Naoko Takeuchi, the creator of Sailor Moon, or uh, Ryoko Ikeda, the creator of Rose of Versailles. It depends a lot upon the terms of their contract and their relationship with their publishers. 
but yeah, I can very see clearly see it. If not uh, out of legal issues, then certainly just out of respect and maintaining good business relationships where they would not want to tread on Yasuhiko's toes no more than they would want to tread on Tomino's. Yeah, and you see this too when big auteur figures leave a company, like when Anno left Gainax. Of course, different context, but he takes the rights to like Ava with him, and it seemed there wasn't too much trouble in that regard. Whereas if like Yasuhiko was a, a creator in the West, in America, I imagine whatever corporate entity presided over him when he wrote that manga for them or animated that film for them, I imagine they would keep the control of that intellectual property and probably mine it for all it's worth, even if he left the company or even if he disagreed with their actions. But fortunately, we didn't have to deal with that in this case because Yasuhiko, Yasuhiko gave the green light, and when he gave the green light, things were a go. But an anime production can't get started on a handshake alone. At the very least, you need a producer, a writer, and a director to kick things off. Fortunately, not only was a producer chosen, but he was an old friend and colleague of Yaz's, Hiroyuki Tomioka, a managing director at Sunrise, who we've talked about before. Hideyuki Tomioka was, and still is, a Sunrise lifer. He began his career at the studio in 1982 as a gopher, transporting materials between studios. And by gopher, I mean literally he's probably driving around a little cart between the studios, dropping off <laughs> manuscripts, or dropping off scripts, I should say, and uh, cells and different animation bips and bobs. Through diligence, networking, and I'm sure a lot of brown-nosing, he climbed the corporate ladder and became a producer, before eventually ascending into executive heaven, which is where he is today. By all accounts, Tomioka is a nice guy. His co-workers have commented in interviews that he's always smiling. He seems very genial. Again, this is PR speech in interviews, but he seems... I've read a lot of interviews of Tomioka's and a lot of interviews with people he's worked with. He seems like a genuinely nice dude. PMC, we've talked about him before. He produced Gundam Wing, as well as Gundam X, brain-powered, shout-outs to Russell... <laughs> And turn A. So he has a... And also the movie Steam Boy, if you've ever seen oh that boy. one. Oh, boy. Yeah. Tomioko and Yasuhiko go way back. Tomioko was a production assistant on Arion. So another name for a gopher, transporting material and stuff like that. Fun fact, Tomioka credits Yasuhiko for getting him and his wife together. Apparently, Yaz played the role of matchmaker. Aww. Which I think, like, just... Having, like, lived in gas interviews for four or five weeks at this point, I feel like he would make a pretty decent matchmaker. He's very considerate, very humble, seems like a very honest guy. Could you imagine if Tomio got, Tom, Tomino got two people together? I, oof. I don't know. But I mean, yes, I could because I've watched Zeta Gundam. <laughs> and so I know, I know exactly... Assuming, assuming we're talking about a hetero couple, I know exactly what Tomino would say to the woman. Uh, and I'm not going to say it on this podcast. Could you imagine if Tomino gave a speech at your uh, wedding? He yeah, has a actually clusterfuck. That would be. It would just be. It would just be the Slugger Law oh, speech no. from. 
Yeah, that's what it would be. That's what it would be. You just hundred percent. Like, don't you see that this guy is crazy for you? I don't know if it was anything like that, but I do know for a fact that in the late nineties, Tamino was one of the speakers at uh, Mamoru Nagano's wedding uh, to his longtime partner Maria ah. Kawamura, the famous voice actress. Interesting. Because uh, yeah, Tamino want- and Nagano go way back, of course, all the way to Zeta, and have been supporters of one another for a long time. I want the released transcript of his speech. <laughs> Tomino fans would eat that up on Twitter. That would get 500 likes, 250 retweets, guaranteed. Now, Tomioka knew exactly who to approach to handle scripting. His old friend, one of the masterminds behind Operation Meteor, Katsuyuki Sumizawa. The two of them had worked together before on Gundam Wing, which of course aired from 1995 to 1996. Endless Waltz, which came out, which came out, the, the OVAs came out in 1997. The theatrical release was the year after. And Inuyasha which aired from 2000 to 2004. Even when a production was imploding, see Gundam Wing, <laughs> they could rely on each other to steady the ship in turbulent waters. Also, they're drinking buddies. Uh, Sumizawa's drinking, uh, and not in a pejorative manner, has come up in interviews a few times. He likes to drink. No judgment there. But admittedly, they both like to go out after a hard day's work and relax with a cold glass. So it should come as no surprise that when Tomioka brought Sumizawa to Yasuhiko's house to discuss the OVA, Sumizawa and Yaz went on drinking together until dawn. I'm sure had quite a bit of fun reminiscing about old times, sharing anime industry anecdotes, and maybe sketching out some of those first steps for Gundam The Origin. Now just to re- uh clear my mind or, or refresh my mind Sumisawa was specifically the the writer who would kind of end up taking directing duties in the back half of wing right just to, to study the ship was that no, no. Was so he, he did he did leave like for he a left. very brief okay, time he's he the was one. head okay. writer it okay. was shinji takamatsu who was he was working on wing and then he was elevated to the position of director when akeda okay. was Ikeda. fired yes yeah. yes okay I was just trying to remember. It just—I don't know. Wing. I hate to say it, but like the—the the further it's in the rearview mirror, the more I like Wing again. And it'll just—that'll happen until I watch it again, and then it'll just Wing, reset. Wing is great to talk about. <laughs> Less fun to watch if you're not hosting a weekly mm-hmm. mecha podcast. Indeed. By all accounts, Sumizawa's working relationship with Yasuhiko and his experience on Origin was pleasant. Yaz gave him a lot of freedom in writing the screenplay. At first glance, Sumisawa's job might seem easy. After all, he's all, he's adapting already written dialogue from an already published manga, but it involved more work than you might think. Sumisawa puts it quite nicely, so I'll let him explain. Quote, manga is in the form of panels where time is frozen. The reader is free to read at their own pace, but in animation, time flows. So the job of the screenplay is to fine-tune the division of scenes to match the flow of time, and the length of the dialogue so that it syncs with the animation. When adapting source material to film, people often say, you don't need a script, do you? But in reality, it's a necessary job. End quote. Megan, you've seen your fair share of anime adaptations of classic manga. Does his perspective track... Like, have you seen this before, or can you imagine a world in which adapting an already written manga is, you know, pretty significant work? I mean, yeah, I say it absolutely tracks, because manga and animation are two very different mediums, and they have very different requirements. I mean, you can even look at something like Akira. It's not just like Otomo 
copied his pages, gave it to the staff, and be like, do this. They did have to adapt it. And that, and again, I'm trying. I'm giving Sumizawa credit here because that is more work than one might think. To the point where it was so time-consuming that occasionally, at the same time, he was working on Mobile Suit Gundam Wing, Endless Waltz, Colon, Glory of the Losers, which we've talked about before. And of course, it's a monthly publication, a monthly serialization in Gundam Ace. But occasionally, he had to push back new chapters just because he was so busy with the origin. So if you end up really liking the screenplay and origin, you know there's a lot of work behind it. And even if you didn't, still. A lot of work behind it. I'll be honest, though. When I first combed through the credits and discovered that Sumisawa was in charge of writing Origin, I wasn't exactly filled <laughs> with a lot of confidence. Dude seems like a nice guy, but his dialogue is often clunky, and he's not the best when it comes to writing clear and coherent stories. That's why I quoted him before, but it was like, man, this is a really good point, Sumisawa, and this is really clear and well-stated, so I'm going to include it in the notes. I'm going to do your solid. Now, he admits, quote, that the sense of rhythm in Yasuhiko's dialogue is often is quite a bit different than his. End quote. Now, we've all read and watched a lot of Sumisawa and Yasuhiko penned works, so I have two questions for you all. Number one, what do you think Sumisawa meant by this? And number two, do you have strong feelings or trepidations about Sumisawa's um, participation in origin? Hmm. You guys go first. I need to think on this for a bit. All right. I think here is my here is my reaction when it comes to, I guess, the way Sumisawa characters have spoken. I feel like they, uh, I feel like they they monologue a bit more than I recall characters doing in the origin. People aren't mm-hmm. o- always necessarily talking to each other uh, in Gundam Wing. Uh, whereas I feel feel an origin. I feel like even if they're in the same room, they're never talking at each uh, other. They're looking at, at the yeah. horizon. Yes. Yes. Remember, um, remember Hero's speech that he gave at Duo's <laughs> school. Yes, N- absolute nonsense. Absolutely great. Now, here's what I'm going to say. Okay, so you're so we said that, but now we're talking about do I have strong feelings about his participation in Origin, knowing that the Origin OVAs are specifically adapting the prequel bits. What I think is, I think Sumi Sawa can often capture. Uh, fragmentary madness <laughs> and I think that is an essential ingredient to correctly adapting the the prequel bits because remember the prequel bits are a lot of this memory and that memory and the time the time uh, you know a fake Char tricked real Char into getting on the plane to die and uh, you know real Char showing up on his horse because you know put him on a horse and you know, Sumisaw knows how to put a character on a horse. <laughs> yeah, I can see uh, that's that's classic. That's good potential uh, material for Sumisawa to adapt. That's right in his wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you, you nailed it on the head. He he's definitely a lot more melodramatic than Yasuhiko, and his original dialogue tends to be. But that being said, I I didn't necessarily have strong feelings about learning about Sumisawa's participation in this. I mean, he is, he's not writing original work, this is an adaptation, so therefore he's, he's got a little more of an anchor than he did with, say, Gundam Wing. And to give him credit, I know Megan's not the biggest fan, I do like Endless Waltz a lot, and um, I am occasionally warm on Inuasha. I know PMC has an Inuasha anecdote that he always trots out. PMC, do you want to trot it out? The same I mean, episode you would always watch? Yeah, well, it felt like the same episode, because, I mean, here's the problem... 
I, I feel like as time goes on, I have less confidence in that because I feel like, I feel like, you know, you sit down at like 1 a.m. in your, in your kitchen in, in Jersey before you go to bed and you turn on Adult Swim and it's always the same episode of Inyasha <laughs> and the guy shows up and he's going to use his, the big hole in his hand. Uh, but then the bees are there and then like it's the same, it's always the same series of events. So I, I honestly, maybe it wasn't the same episode. Maybe all the episodes are the same. I truly do not know. It has been years. Inuyasha fans, if you're out there, um, I'm sorry. I'll probably play Inuyasha games someday. I don't know if I'm going to watch Inuyasha. <laughs> oh, the natural follow-up. There was a PS2 Inuyasha game, correct? I believe so. I think there's a PS1 fighting game. Inuyasha had a PS1 game, real late-ass PS1 game. And then I think there is a more adventure-styled PS2 there, game. Is there a DS game as I well? Believe. That got localized here. I think so. You might be right. It's one of the rare ones because by the time we're getting into DS anime games, like relatively fewer of those got localized. Like um, you know, like uh, like the Gears game didn't get localized. The uh, the Gurren Lagann game didn't get localized. But you might be right about the Inuyasha one because I feel like that's early enough. Did we get Jump Stars the fighting yes. game? Yes. I had a feeling we and, did. And also coming back. Oh, that's the only one I distinctly coming remember. Coming back to Sumisawa, you know, sometimes. Sometimes some of the chaos is not always his fault. I remember reading an interview with him on ANN where someone asked him about working on Brain Power because he was not head writer, but he was one of the writers working on that show. And he recounts, you know, writing out his script, turning it into Tomino, and Tomino's like, oh, this is very good. And when Sumisawa went to watch the episode he wrote, it was something completely different because Tomino had altered it afterwards. <laughs> I love that interview. I like when he talks about the. Uh, adapting like four panels of Dragon Ball Z and having to turn those four panels into like 22 yes, minutes Yes, from of that television. same interview. Yeah. I mean, yep, that's that's accomplishment in and of itself. And again, like I was talking about Tomioka, Sumizawa is uh, a good interviewee. He's always seems like he's having a good time. He's very genial in his interviews. So I don't want to come down too hard on him. I, I, did, I do have some trepidation um, just given the occasional chaos and incoherence of Gundam Wing, but I think he'll be reined in because he has very solid source material and also he's answering to people like Yasuhiko and others. I need to issue a warning uh, because Megan was right. There is an English language DS game of Inuyasha and the reason I have to issue a warning is because it was one of the uh, one of the North American only games. Oh. It, was, it was not there were a series of anime games like uh, um Yu Hakusho? Yu Hakusho also has one. They're all bad. <laughs> Do not play them. Anyway. It's wild, the stuff that I know. Like, Amita was like, oh, Yu Hakusho had a game. Yep. Like, it's it's wild. Like, 70 years, <laughs> if I live that long, I'll remember this. I can't remember I put like, my car keys, but I could, like, read my child a bedtime story, and that bedtime story could be the creation of Gundam Wing, and I don't even need a script. I can just tell, <laughs> tell the whole story. All right. So, with that out of the way, Yasuhiko's involvement as one of the principal creatives of the Origin OVA wasn't a foregone conclusion. Originally, he just wanted to check the scenario. His role would change a lot over the course of the production as he got more and more involved. Stay tuned for more information on that a little later. But at the beginning, he took on the title of Chief Director. The exact duties of this position were... I, want, I shouldn't say constantly in flux. They were more nebulous, I should say, when other people have been interviewed about Yasuhiko's like direct responsibilities and the answer kind of changes each time there's a general pattern but exactly what he did and at that time period could kind of change on a day-to-day -day basis but he was in charge of main character designs and storyboards and approved mecha design 
CG modeling, background art, really anything having to do with the visuals had to get his rubber stamp if he felt so inclined. And this is at the beginning of production. I guess at the very, very, very beginning of the production, he was like, yo, I just want to I just want to check the scenario. That's it. But of course, then he got, you know, just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. He got more and more responsibilities. I was going to say, having this sort of supervisory role is not all that uncommon when mangaka get involved with adaptations of their work. But it can vary the degree to which how they how much they're yes. involved, right? So since Yasuhiko wasn't completely involved 100% day in and day out in the office, he needed someone in the trenches, so to speak. As chief director, there was some distance between himself and the production on a day-to-day level. Not unlike Kawamori on Macross Plus. In fact, he did the bulk of his work on the first four episodes out of the office, drawing storyboards and doing checks from the comfort of his home. Shout out to Yasuhiko, really predicting the pandemic there and deciding, you know, fuck office culture, I'm just going to work at home. Chill with my manga panels and I'll prove storyboards when and where I want. Hell yeah. Takahashi Imanishi, another Sunrise veteran, was brought on to direct origin. We're going to talk a lot about him this episode. He had... The tense is right there. He had a long and storied career at the studio. Ten years younger than Yasuhiko, Imanishi had joined Sunrise right after he graduated college in the early 80s. He worked on Armored Trooper Votoms, which came out in 1983, and Panzer World Gallant, which came out in 1984. As he moved up the creative ladder, he eventually made a name for himself as someone who is deeply knowledgeable about military matters and CG. Keep in mind, he has, no, he has no history with the military, which could potentially raise some red flags. On the flags. other hand, that doesn't surprise me if he started out working with uh, Ryosuke Takahashi, because Takahashi is also, as far as mecha directors go, a little more military-minded than most. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of these um, military-minded fans were kind of born in that military otaku culture of the 70s and 80s. Not that I'm casting too many aspersions, but when I read that, like, Numerous people who were interviewed on the production team said he is really deep into um, military matters. Um, it kind of like created an archetype <laughs> in my mind, which when I started thinking about the things that he's done and what happened to him on this production, it kind of kind of tracks a bit. So knowing that he's really interested in the military and he is interested in computer graphics, it should come as no surprise to learn that later in his career, he directed the back half of Mobile Suit Gundam Stardust Memory specifically episodes 8 through 13, which came out in installments in 1991 and 1992, and Mobile Suit Gundam MS, Igloo, the shorts, which released from a period of like five years, from 2004 to 2009. So I think we have some familiarity with his work. I know PMC does. So I have to ask, after I mention those two titles and maybe some more of his work that you're familiar with, are any patterns emerging, creatively speaking? Like, are there any of like signature touches a, as a director that you can highlight? PMC, I know we were talking about Igloo the other day. I don't know if how much memory you have of it, but do you see any patterns there? Yeah, you know, I was actually going to say when I when I read this that you know that the back half of Stardust Memory and Igloo shared director a uh, director. The thing that really stuck out to me was I think both of those uh, that portion of Stardust Memory as well as Igloo have some really sweeping space battlefield shots in terms of getting a sense of the full scope of the battlefield in space. Stardust Memory has, you know, the bit with the return of the solar system, the emergence of the Titans on a Elgato firing off 
the nuke. That's a big sweeping battlefield in space. Uh, similarly, uh, you know, one of the igloo shorts. I, I, this has been a while, but I recall having a, a plot line about the deployment of a special beam cannon at the Battle of Loom, and the oh. and it sort of follows uh, some of the events of this science team that's trying to show off this cannon. They end up getting upstaged by the success of mobile suits. This, so it's a very militaristic plot line, but. You know the common through line there is that once again you're seeing this cannon being deployed relative to what's going on at the Battle of Loom. So again, you're getting a sense of the scope and placement of a battlefield in space. So uh, you know sweeping shots, also very militaristic. Mega, have you seen Igloo? I have not seen Igloo. I mean, most people did not see Igloo for the longest time because Bondi Visual had it in print for like half a second in the late 2000s. But I have seen Gundam 0083, and it should be noted that Imanishi not only directed the back half under an alias, he also was a writer, I believe, for those episodes as well. If not mm. more so. I'd, I'd have to check the an encyclopedia to be 100% certain, but admittedly, his participation was the red flag for me, not, not Sumizawa as writer, because mm. Gundam 0083 was, you know, really flashy, but, you know... <sighs> He's not so great when it comes to writing women, and he can be a little bit of an apologist for some shitty people. Got him! <clears throat> Monster! <clears throat> and, you know, maybe th this explains some of the criticisms people will have about the OVA w when you, you know, get into it eventually. Yeah, I mean, I know PMC's not a fan of Stardust Memory. I'm not either, though. It's been a while since I've watched Same it. Same here, Kosaks. From memory, I, I agree with your points totally. Um, he writes women characters incredibly poorly, and he does not apply a critical lens to the actions that his characters commit. He gets very swept up, I feel like, in the image of military commanders and doesn't um, like challenge that that like aura appropriately. I'm like I'm using a lot of academic ac academic terms to dance around uh, like what you essentially said, Megan, which was he's kind of like a Gato apologist. And if you know anything about Double O Double Eighty Three, Gato sucks. Not as much as Co. I mean, basically, the only thing that got me through Double O Eighty Three was Sema, but that's neither here nor there. The one thing I do love about Double Eighty Three, other than that banger of an opening, is the animation. That it could be the my favorite animation in all of Gundam. I love the team who worked on it. It just, the hand-drawn animation looks so good, and the Katoki designs and the Kawamori designs, the, the mobile suit designs and Gundam designs, look so, so, so good. But again, we'll talk, we may we may podcast about, if we're, if we're doing this long enough, we will eventually podcast about 0083. Maybe, maybe not Igloo, though can't be overstated how technically proficient and experienced Imanishi is with CG. For better or worse, he was one of its early pioneers at Sunrise and pushed for its use. Iglo was the result of the hit this advocacy. Imanishi would go on to establish DID, literally all caps, D-I-D, which no doubt, which was Sunrise's top CG team, which he previously ran. Keyword, Previously. And by hiring Imanishi, you're hiring Did, which no doubt was a calculated decision. Origin employs more than a healthy amount of CG, especially when it comes to mecha animation. Now, Megan, you had an interesting fact here about his CG work. Yeah, uh, even before the Origin OVAs was announced, uh, he was CGI director on the uh, 
Space Battleship Yamato 2199 movies, which of course was edited into its own TV show. And have you two mm. have seen Yamato 2199? I have not. It has. What year did it come out? See, God, originally, I think that was early 2010s, maybe. Okay. But anyway, the CGI in that is very, very good. Probably some of the best I've seen in anime, as far as like integration of that into the, the regular animation. It is top notch. Now, speaking of CG animation, this is a perfect segue to the question I'm about to pose to both of you. We don't have to get too in-depth here, but since we're talking about CG mecha in motion uh, in a OVA format, this is one of the more hot-button issues when it comes to evaluating Origin. People have thoughts on the amount of CG featured in Origin, which tends to negatively color their opinions. I'm not even casting judgment on that because I have my own opinions about the CG mechs. But do you have... have some general thoughts on this again we're going to get into this more during our discussions of individual episodes i mean i definitely understand the nostalgia people have for hand-drawn mecha animation and at its very best it is it can be amazing stuff but i can also understand that there just aren't as many people as talented doing that in 2d as there used to be and 3d mecha animation is at this point is almost kind of a necessity but as we'll see it's we discuss this OVA and more recent projects by Sunrise and other studios. You know, there are animators out there today who can work with it really well and still produce really fantastic animation. Yeah, I think at this point, considering that, you know, some of my favorite Gundam stuff is the more recent stuff that has the CG mechs, uh, I have I have no problem saying that, you know, by itself, of course, we'll discuss the episodes as they come, but by itself, it's certainly not a deal breaker for me. I'm, I'm, I can be happy either way. Yeah, I'm in agree. Co-signed. Of course, I prefer the CG animation. Like, give me F91, give me Shara's counterattack. You mean drawn? Was that? You said you said I prefer <laughs> CG animation. I oh, see. I'm in I'm in podcast mode. This words words <laughs> words. Yes, I prefer hand drawn animation. Like, give me like I said, Shara's counterattack F91. Give me Stardust Memory. I will say though, I think the CG is a little rough in the beginning, but. I haven't seen the later episodes, but I have seen the trailer for Kukuru's Don't, and I really like how the mechs look in that film. Um, the Gundam, the titular Gundam looks fantastic, and same with the gun cannon, which they released some new material for the other day. I really think they're getting a handle on this. And I do wonder, I know, I think Studio Did is still around. I assume they are working on Kukuru's Don't. I would have to presume the same as well. Yeah. but And even like in the later episodes of Origin, I also presume that the the mecha animation looks better and better and better. Let's talk a bit about character designs now. So, before pre-production even began, when the origin OVA was still in a twinkle in the eyes of Sunrise executives, Tsukasa Kotoboko and Hiroyuki Nishimura were brought on to start conceptual work as character designer and animation director, respectively. Given that Yasuhiko did both of these jobs in the past, he has a keen eye for talent. And no doubt they were both honored when they were chosen for this role, on this project. 
Note, Kotoboko and Hishimura were the first two to boots-on-the-ground members of the Origin team. Now, what I mean by this is when Tomioka, Yasuhiko, Imanishi were busy hiring people and getting things finished on a bureaucratic level, these two were literally the only ones in the office idly working on conceptual work until they got their marching orders. So really, at this time, they're hired, and they're like, they're, they're in a room, nothing to do, no directive, so they start just drawing. They want to see if they can emulate Yasuhiko's style on their own. So presumably for the first week or two, they're just in the offices, idly scribbling. And I'm sure there are copies of or- the origin manga all over the place. I want to focus on Kotoboko for a second. He was an experienced mangaka who was no stranger to Gundam. He had written and illustrated Mobile Suit Suit Zeta Gundam Day After Tomorrow from Kai Shiden's report, 2007 to 2009. Uh, that's not part of the title. It was released in 2007 <laughs> to 2009. It's a serialization in Gundam Ace. And the follow-up, which is Day After Tomorrow, Kai Shiden's Memory, which uh, was serialized from 2009 to 2012. Uh, the success, like we mentioned last episode, of the origin manga kicked off an interest in the UC timeline, and Kotoboko was enlisted to meet that demand. These two mangas seem super cool. Kai's the point-of-view character in both series. Essentially, and this is just from summaries, I haven't had the privilege of reading these, it's him reminiscing about his experiences in the one-year war and the events leading up to the grips war that pronunciation check i'm pronouncing that right it's been a while since i've seen zeta you're good awesome they both employ frame narratives so it's the year 0105 and kai has been invited to give a speech at a memorial exhibition in zoom city the stories he tells at this event serve as the central narrative and Kotoboko had grander ambitions for the follow-up Kai Shiden memory, but he had to end it early because Origin consumed so much of his time. Megan, do you have any info about these series or an interest in potentially reading them one day? I'm not familiar with them, but I'm always down for more good Kai Shiden content. Same. Um, Kai is, for me, the standout character from Mobile Suit Gundam, so I am very eager to check these out if... I don't know, Dempa Books ever wants to bring them out, I'd be more than happy to drop some significant change on them. PMC, you're a big Kai stand too, right? Yeah, definitely. I was going to say, we didn't. it didn't come up in our discussion of the manga, but the uh, the extra story when, yes! when Kai goes to visit Sailor. Oh, God, yes. Is... The, 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 the postscript story mm-hmm. where he decides to be very a journalist. Good. God, that one is great. So many good faces. It's very good. So many weird imaginings in his head. What's the yeah, last? Did, what's the last animated work that Kai factors into, even as like a bit character? Unicorn. Uh, Unicorn. Yes. All right. Based on PMC's reaction, there's some stuff going on there. Yes. But <laughs> we will. Don't worry. We will revisit that by the end of the podcast. <laughs> so uh, before we leave Kotoboko, I want to touch on one more thing. Uh, he, Kotoboko's work in Gundam Ace caught Yasuhiko's eye when he was drawing the manga. He remembers, "quote His manga caught my attention." His work has a new allure that I can't draw. If I was younger, I would have attempted a conscious effort to adapt his style. End quote. Which I think is pretty high praise. Having seen a few episodes of Origin at this point, I can confidently say that Kotoboko's style is the perfect complement to Yaz's. Um, I don't think he's, you know, I prefer, you know, I prefer Yaz's style a little bit more, but I do think Kotoboko's style is like more rounded characters exude a similar warmth. So I think he's a solid choice for character designer. Agreed. And keep in mind, you might be thinking to yourself at home, all right, 
Well, Yasuhiko is working on this. He's already designed a bunch of characters that were featured in Gundam The Origin. Why do you need a character designer? Because you have to translate those characters to animation. And also, you need a ton more characters because the scope of this project is so much greater. Mm -hmm. It's like a lot of big characters that might appear in one frame in like a city shot or something. They need to be drawn and then later animated. And Yasuhiko's not doing that. He's doing, he's looking like, and he's an eagle above soaring over and approving work. And he's looking at the big picture. He's not necessarily in the trenches day to day. He's definitely not in the trenches day to day um, churning out these character designs. You know what I love? I love music. I, I always, in these history segments, love talking about the composers, because I usually learn so many fun facts, and there is usually a lot of like cross-pollination when it comes to uh, musicians and the mecha shows they worked on, and I always like find deep video game cuts that are wild. So even though he wasn't needed right away, Takayuki Hattori was brought on as composer um, pretty early on in the production. A classically trained conductor and musician, Hattori is such a Yaz pick. I can only assume that he was handpicked specifically, or personally, by Yasuhiko. He scored numerous TV dramas like Hiro, The King's Restaurant, and Naoki Hanzawa, but he also specializes in, yes, historical drama series like Shinsengumi. His music exudes a gravitas that complements not only the scope of a historical epic, but kaiju flicks too. He has scored multiple Godzilla flicks, so I could definitely track the patterns in his filmography. And fun fact, Hattori's been around for a while. He's in his mid-50s and has some interesting video game and mecha credentials under his belt. He rearranged and composed the Symphonic Suite Final Fantasy album, which came out in 1989. It was one of the first collections of arranged FF music. It could be the first... PMC, I know you're big into Final Fantasy music. Have you listened to this album before? Uh, I don't think so. I, oh man, I don't have too much of a relationship to to music that early in the series. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I am familiar with some arrangements mm-hmm. uh, of you know of works because I guess '89. I probably would be would that be one and two at that point that it covers or three two. I, I forget. Okay, I want to say okay. three two. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure it's a banger because. I've listened to other arrangements of tracks from those games, which are very good. So, uh, but no, I'm not familiar with that myself. Yeah, I think it was. I literally think it was part of like the first concerts for Final Fantasy music, or I guess video game music in Japan. Maybe Dragon Quest had one before then. And I think he conducted the orchestra and arranged the music, which then was turned into a album release. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, listeners out there, but I seem to recall that anecdote from way back when. He did work with Square on some Saiken Densetsu music, too. He did some rearrangements. He did the music for Ark the Lad, Twilight of the Spirits, which is a really underrated gem of a game. I, PMC, you haven't played it, have you? I have not. It's surprisingly good. There's a fifth Ark the Lad game, which is not good, but whenever whenever you get around to potentially playing Twilight of the Spirits, know that it's a pretty decent game and it goes down easy. And Mechawise, he did the soundtrack for Martian Successor Nadesco, a TV show that is on our radar, I will say that, hint, hint. So he is no stranger to the genre. Megan, have you ever encountered Hattori's music before in anything that you've watched? 
Uh, I don't think so. Not much of a live-action drama or a kaiju kind of girl. And I never gotten particularly deep into JRPG music. So yeah, the, the closest I've come is seeing a few episodes of Nadesco, so I've certainly heard his score there. Yeah, I don't. I can't attest for the quality of the score because I've only seen like one or two episodes. I think from a DVD featured in New Type from <laughs> like the year two thousand and two, probably. Wow. Um, so it's been a while. Actually, I might begin that date wrong. I think New Type. I don't even know if New Type was being released in America at that point. But you, you know, what I'm saying. So and uh, Hattori wasn't the biggest like Gundam fan. He had no he had no negative relationship with Gundam, but he hadn't seen much of it. So he had to do some research before actually beginning to compose for the origin. Now, even though his knowledge of the series was shallow, Yaz and other project leads was confident he was up to the task. After reading the script and talking with Yasuhiko, he understood that Origin was a tale with no bright future whatsoever. As a result, a lot of his compositions have a fatalistic quality to them. While I wouldn't say they're earworms, these tracks tonally calibrate the turbulent political environment the characters have to navigate. And I think his music really captures the tragic, inevitability of the one-year war really well and he composed a lot of music for the origin because there are a lot of tracks for each uh, ova episode so there are many many cds Um, i think a cd i think there's a cd for each ova release so if you're into the music there's a lot of content to listen to i did read an interview with hattori so i do have some fun facts and hopefully there'll be some fun audio after these little tidbits Hattori was excited when they got to episode two because it allowed him to experiment more stylistically and tonally with his pieces. I get the feeling that he was like a little bummed out because so much of the music is, it's very dramatic, yes, but it's very kind of sad and bellicose and martial at times. And quote, he says, I remember feeling very relieved when Tobolo's castle appeared in episode two and I could write music with a Spanish feel or Western style for the Texas colony. He really liked that Origin provided him an opportunity to write lyrics for songs, too. He cites Haman's piece as one that he is particularly proud of. Quote, Mr. Yasuhiko had clear ideas about Haman's song. He said he wanted drums for the intro, a composition for a bar or club singer, a sax with a four rhythm, and so forth. It was all very exact. PMC, what is sax with a four rhythm? Is that a give me some drop some knowledge on me? Well, I mean, I assume that just means I, I saw that phrase, you know, when I was going through this, and I was trying to puzzle out because I assume that just it just means that it was a you know a sort of standard jazz rhythm with the uh you know in jazz the, the the secret trick to jazz that if you want to talk to anyone is that the emphasis is on two and four so okay. you're counting through 
beats of music one two three four that's normally one's the strongest three's the next and then two and four a week and jazz you know you're emphasizing the off beats so that was my guess mm-hmm. at, at what, what was meant by that quote yeah uh, that's I'm not curious. a classic Stephen hero typo because i was pulling that right from the interview no no i i i assumed it was it was a quote and so um that also could be an incidence of a classical musician talking about jazz uh, which is always a minefield. Mm. Megan, do you know if Yasuhiko had any history with like music? Just because these are all very specific like suggestions for a jazz piece. I, I wonder if he had any like inclinations to be a musician or any history playing any instruments. Not that I'm aware of. Yeah, I didn't think so as well. But I, I bumped on that when I was reading that interview. I was like, wow, this is it's, it's not just like yeah, I like this cool dank ass jazz jazz piece. He was like, yes. <laughs> It's any of these specific requirements, please. Thank you. Now, even though he started in a place of ignorance when it came to Gundam, he did his due diligence and listened to the original soundtrack, which he occasionally remixed and incorporated into his origin score. Quote, Also, I used some of the music written by Takeo Watanabe and Yuji Matsuyama that was used in the TV series. I used their motifs and rearranged them to my tastes. Also, shout-outs to Yu Yu, a pop singer, who sings, and again, I'm, I know I'm for a fact I'm butchering this title, uh, Hoshi Kuzi no Tsunadoke, a piece written by Hattori for the credits of the first episode when Casval and Artesia gaze out into space and watch as Munzo, their home, gets smaller and smaller until it's engulfed by space. Her song is singularly beautiful. Hattori wrote the lyrics. But she composed and sung this. Actually, I think he wrote the lyrics and composed the song, but she sung the lyrics, and it's very, very beautiful. like episode one episode two experience with origin pmc have you listened to any of the music at this point i have not megan do you have any takes on the music sorry right if you don't i just wanted to give everyone an opportunity to weigh in here uh, god it's been a while since i've watched these episodes because i'll be watching along with the podcast so i mm. don't have any particularly strong memories of the music i'm sorry to say no, no worries. Uh, I will say this as ending though. I really do like the music. I will. It's not as... There are some bangers in the original Mobile Suit Gundam soundtrack, like just some earworms that get into your head, like Galen Shar, which I have no idea if that makes an appearance in Gundam The Origin. I'll be pleasantly surprised if it does, but I don't think it does. Gundam The Origin commercial is another story, but... 
not in the uh, uh, the origin uh, OVA. But I will say, I like the music a lot. It complements the political tone very well. And there's a lot of... And it takes some surprising swerves at times. And I'll leave it at that. And we'll talk about the music as we will for when we get to each episode. Yeah, you know, I want to make a comment about uh, format and music. Because I think pre- in our previous podcasting life, we had mostly been watching... TV series, mm-hmm. you know, which would typically have the same ending music. Uh, whereas, you know, in so far in Giant Robot FM, we've been watching movies and OVAs. And I didn't, I don't, I think I'm just now beginning to appreciate the impact that Macross Plus has had on my life because I know that when I hear that vocal number come in, I know I'm ready to get hot because it's the end of the episode and I just watched an episode of an OVA. Um, so I, I'm looking forward now to the experience of finishing the first episode of Gundam The Origin and hearing this vocal number. It's funny that you bring up Macross Plus of all things because I was thinking of voices when I was listening to you saying both pieces are excellent, but mm-hmm. um, they definitely elicit an, a, a distinct emotional response from me. We gotta talk about mechanical designers, baby. This is a Mecca podcast. We're gonna talk shop about Mecca. So, being a legacy project, it's not surprising that the origin had a prodigious number of mechanical designers who contributed to the final project. Most foundational was Kunio Okawara, who we've talked about before. He was the mechanical designer on First Gundam. Also, he worked with Yasuhiko on the designs for the origin manga. As I understand it, uh, Ogawara's role on the Origin OVA was in a more consulting capacity. He took part in early meetings with the team and imparted advice to the mechanical designers. Now, of course, nearly all the mobile suits featured in the six-episode OVA originated in the manga, so his design sensibilities permeate the show. The lead mechanical designer on Origin was one of my faves, Hajime Kitoke. We've talked about him before, and we'll talk about him again, but suffice it to say, he's a Gundam veteran, Memorably, he got his start in the industry doing illustrations for Gundam Sentinel in the late 80s, and his career took off from there. He did the mechanical designs on Victory, Wing, Endless Waltz, OA-MS Team, and most recently, Hathaway's Flash. He's worked closely with Imanishi before. Kotoki also did design work on Stardust Memory and Igloo, so his participation on Origin makes sense. Any, um, actually... So, in effect, most of, basically all the mobile suits and Gundams that make an appearance in Origin were designed by Kotoki based on illustrations that Okawara originally drew. And we'll drill down on these designs when we discuss the episodes, but do you all have any opinions on Kotoki and his design sensibilities? Uh, Megan, you had the hot take last time that you're not the biggest fan of Okawara's designs. Do you have any strong feelings about Katoki? I'm not a Katoki fan for the large part, uh, particularly from like seed Ooh. onward. I, just, I, I, I don't care for it. it. It just tends to be points, 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 points. There is one exception, though. I love what he did for the Oz suits on Gundam Wing. I freaking yeah. love I don't care for all, any of the five main suits, but give me the Talgies. Mark 1 only, not Mark 2 or 3. They are garbage. Give me the Leo, Ooh. give me the Fergo, give me the Taurus. Just just give me all those Oz suits. They are so good. As a roller coaster of a take, like, I agree with you and I don't agree with you and I agree <laughs> with you again. 
But I, I do, I love the Leo design. It's like the the quintessential mecha design for me. I love the grunt suits from Gundam Wing, so definitely co-sign in that regard. Big fan of the Tall Geese 3 myself, but that's a topic for another podcast. PMC, give me some Kotoki, give me some Kotoki takes. I was trying to think of a, a, a broad Kotoki take, and I think that what I settled upon, uh, now, so not too long ago, we, we've discussed Shoji Kawamori and how Kawamori was, it really excels at suits that feel like truly logical because they were designed, you know, almost with a toy. Like they really do transform. The Valkyrie and Macross really does transform. I feel like Kotoki, his suits should never actually exist. <laughs> but, but they do make, they do have an incredible amount of logic to them. And I think that's what's sort of fun is that they are simultaneously uh, extremely logical and uh, extremely unrealistic. Yeah, there's a weight to his designs that I appreciate. Even his more ostentatious designs, I feel like there's a clarity of purpose. Like I could, I could read the math on it. And of course, his designs from 08, the Master Team, are some of my favorites because they're so grounded. Even though it's all make believe shit, it like feels like there's a there's a weight to it, which you could argue is not always present in the origin because of the, its CG roots. But again, that's a topic for another conversation for another day. But Katoki's not the only mechanical designer on origin not by a long shot so like i said before all the mechs were katogis but the scope of the origin required multiple mechanical designers to keep up with the demand of creating new universal century tech so enter kimitoshi yamane and mika akitaka even though many normie fans don't know his name yamane has an outsized influence on the american fandom most notably, he did the ship designs in Cowboy Bebop, and he did some design work on Escaflone. So the next time you happen to walk into a Hot Topic and see an overpriced t-shirt with a swordfish on it, you have Yamane, too, partially. Thank for that. Yamane and Imanishi go way back. Quote, I've had a long relationship with both Mr. Imanishi and Did Studio, so I joined the project in the usual way with a please and thank you. End quote. He worked with Imanishi on Igloo and UC Hardgraph, that origin side story that we mentioned before. Since Kotogi was tackling the mobile suit designs, he was in charge of the gun tanks and other pre-mobile suit machines, armored vehicles, and some of the ships. He cited the limousine that all the zombies are in in Episode 1 as one of his designs as well. He jokes that he's been pigeonholed as the tank guy. He literally in the interview used the phrase, quote, Tanks equal Yamane, end quote. Which he seems fine with, but reading between the lines, I get the feeling that he wanted to take a crack at some of the mobile suit designs. And I just want to say, let Yamane design some mobile suits. I love Katoki, but I want to I want to give Yamane a chance because his designs are super cool. He does he's he does great ship designs. The swordfish is iconic. Same with the Bebop. Same with Phase Ship, and I never ever remember the name. It has a name, right? I've not watched enough Cowboy Bebop to say. Uh, I I should know it. I'm channeling all my energy like a spirit bomb to, uh, for PMC to remember the name. But yeah, I mean, if he worked on Escaflone, I mean, anybody who helped bring the world to Guy Mellifs, you know, can't be that bad at mobile suit design. Yeah. I, I, and uh, like I mentioned before, Robot Alchemic Drive, he worked on, I so I posted it once for a Mecha Day, and I could not, like, definitively identify the mechanical designer which is a problem sometimes when you're work like have only Moby games to work with. 
But he definitely did the, the character art in that, and uh, it also looks equally as cool. My, the last mechanical designer who worked on the, four, the first four episodes, his name is Miki Akitaka. He's another Gundam veteran, worked on Double Zeta and 0083. He helped shoulder some of the design work, too. He was responsible mainly for designing the warships of both the Federation and Xeon forces. All the designs look super cool. These guys really came together as a team to produce some high-quality content. My only complaint is let Yamane design mobile suits. Other than that, um, I could co-sign a lot of these designs. They look cool. They, they look especially cool on paper. Sometimes I don't think the transition to CG was perfect, but again, the tech is always evolving. So keep that in mind as you're watching those early episodes of Gundam The Origin. Let Akitaka take more cracks at mobile suit design because he designed the Turbra get the sorry the Gerbera Tetra from 0083, which is the best suit in that OVA, bar none. Oh, that's right. That is a sick design. That's gonna make it. Now that you said that, that's gonna make an appearance on Mecha Day very soon. Man, I, I wish the quality of 0083 matched the visuals and matched the mechanical designs because we have a whole nother show to talk about so like I mentioned earlier a lot of other staff worked on Gundam The Origin. We're going to highlight a few of them here, but I couldn't work my way through all 40 interviews. And also, if I did, the podcast would get boring real quickly because I would just be rattling off facts about computer graphics and hand-drawn animation that I don't have a perfect handle on. So it's not ideal podcasting material. That's that's a visual form. You want to see like a video essay on that. But Yasuhiko and Okawara weren't the only old-timers to help out with Origin. Keep in mind that during the production of Origin, Tomino was busy working on G. Rucko, so even if he wanted to contribute, and he probably wouldn't, he could not. He was, his, he was busy. Furthermore, not everyone from the original team was alive. Origin went into production in 2014, roughly, 35 years after Mobile Suit Gundam first hit Japanese airwaves, which meant that some of the original team had since passed away, like Takeo Watanabe, who composed the music. He died in the late 80s, so he hadn't been around for a while at that point, and... Uh, Hirotaka Suzioka, who voiced Bright. Like, Bright is not in the origin OVA, but I just wanted to give another example of someone who worked on the original show who had since passed away. But Atano was still alive. Atano of the Atano Circus fame got his start in the industry working on Mobile Suit Gundam at the age of 20. Ichiro Atano worked under Yasuhiko and viewed him as a mentor. He credits his talents to Yaz's influence. He also worked with Yaz on Crusher Joe, so I imagine that he was more than happy to reunite with his old friend on Origin. Quite frankly, I imagine it was kind of fun because it seemed like Atano's responsibilities weren't too labor-intensive, so he got to have some fun doing what he loves, which is drawing very frenetic mecha action, and uh, not doing too much of it either, because really it seemed that he was in charge of the opening scene of Episode 1, and the opening, opening scene only, which thrust viewers in Meteor Rest into the Battle of Loom, um, knowing what you do about his style, does this scene feel like classic Itano? Oh, absolutely. Megan, did you... Yeah, Megan, talk about it for a second. Because, I mean, Itano's specialty, even beyond the, the infamous Itano Circus, was always, you know, fast motion. And that, that first sequence that plunks you right in the middle of the Battle of Loom is nothing if not fast motion. But it should also be noted that uh, this was kind of a way for Itano and Yaz to kind of make up. Uh, from what I recall... 
Um, Ooh. I love spicy takes it's, like it's this. Itano basically kind of jumped ship from Yasuhiko's team to Studio Noe in the midst of uh, working on Crusher mm. Joe to work uh, on Macross. Uh, so I don't want to say there was bad blood, but, you know, it was a, a, a little unprofessional. And it's also kind of nice to see Itano go back to what he's good at because, you know, for the longest time, he'd been working more as a director than as an animator. And the problem is, as a director, he kind of sucks. <laughs> He's made some garbage OVAs. I've heard about some of those garbage OVAs, and just from the descriptions, they seem like garbage. Yeah, n- nobody's pining for Bloss Writer out there, but he's still <laughs> really good at what he does, which is animation. I'd love to get him back in the uh, Kukuru's Don animator seat, but I don't think Kukuru's Donors are going to re- require too much like fast missile play unless they're really radically changing the story. PMC, you got any hot... Itano feelings here? I mean, I think I agree exactly with what Megan said, which is that, uh, you know, and also I think Itano is kind of the right person for for the job to because that's what you want. Like the whole point of the Battle of Loom is mobile suits be fast, yo. <laughs> so they're very effective in anti ship combat. And I, you know, I think he conveys that uh, very, very well. And of course, we'll talk more about that scene on next week's episode when we could dedicate a little bit more time to the opening bit. I, I want to circle around back to one thing because I, I, normally I would let this sort of thing go to revisit it during our future coverage mm-hmm. of the origin but I know that I'm on an episode of this with some big fans of Bright Noah I am pretty sure Bright is in the OVA very okay. late nice. very late so just yeah so just just to circle back on that I was like you know I gotta give him something to look forward to nice I, I, I had no idea I was taking a shot in the dark there I wanted to cover my bases but I'm glad to be corrected because I do love me some bright. I'm looking forward to some bright action in Kukuru's Dome. Hell yeah. Now, speaking of animation, I want to call attention to the contributions of Nagisa Abe, who did color design on Origin. Specifically, she was tasked with thinking up and putting in the colors of skin and clothes and machinery once the line drawings of the characters and mecha are done. Origin, like the manga it's based on, adopts a vivid color palette that complements Yas's more painterly style well. Uh, you know, people have critical things to say about the mecha animation. I feel like people are warmer on the the interactions between characters because there's a lot of hand-drawn animation in those scenes that really works. I feel like Sunrise is really good at this period. Like, g Reco, from what I've seen, looks oh, great, yes. even though it might, narratively, it might be a clusterfuck, and I feel like no other animation studios are pumping out, like, character animation of this quality that airs on television. Oh, yeah, I mean, for all my criticisms of g Reco that are out there, it might be one of the prettiest Gundams I've ever seen. When Sunrise commits to Gundam, they can do beautiful work. Yeah, and that's a real rarity in the year like 2022 or even like the year 2014 because quite frankly, and I don't really mean to cast aspersions here, a lot of anime looked quite cheap. Again, production's difficult. I'm not casting aspersions, but I can't deny the fact that if that show came out 10 years previous, it probably would have looked a whole lot better. Interestingly, the creative team decided to prioritize realism when it came to redefining and representing the Universal Century. They hired a science fiction consultant, Sukaka Shikano, a science fiction writer by trade, who is tasked with attending scenario meetings and giving advice or ideas about how best to approach things. You know, it's all make-believe, but, and he puts this really well, quote, 
By incorporating real ideas into fiction, it's like a hook. You're thinking about incorporating elements that touch people in different ways. End quote. So basically, he was in charge of adding elements of verisimilitude, which in turn enhances the viewing experience. For example, he might tell the animators that when howitzers inside the colony fire along its axis, the flight path would actually be different from when they fire in the direction of the rotation. You know, I don't want to get too cinema sinzy here, because that would definitely be a problem, but I, I thought that fact was pretty cool. Unsurprisingly, though, given Imanishi... You know, given that Imanishi was such a military buff, the team went out of their way to make sure Xeon and Federation forces were depicted appropriately. I also think there's a demand in the fandom for this oh, yeah. realism. Um, Takuhito Kusanagi was brought on as a military uniform and equipment designer. He created uniforms, insignias, and weapons, and ensured that these were all represented consistently on screen. He actually has a very long interview um, on Bandai's official website. Interesting stuff. Not really my thing, but if it is yours, there's a lot of material to come through. Scores more individuals worked on Origin, but it would be too time-consuming to review all of them now. Like I said before, there are 40 translated interviews on the official Origin website that I urge you to check out. We didn't talk too much about the blending of hand-drawn and CG animation, but there are several in-depth interviews that go into that process with some cool pictures um, that really help, um, like the, really help you understand what they're talking about. So I definitely recommend you check that out. Let's talk about production. In what might be a first in giant robot FM history, like when I usually get to this point in the history segment, I'm always like, we really like this show, but it really sucks the you know how it was made because it was backbreaking and brutal labor. Here though, we might have stumbled upon the only mecha production that was not plagued by budget issues, horrendous deadlines, and or abysmal working Hooray! conditions. Not to say the staff wasn't occasionally overworked and there weren't no issues during production because there was a big one we'll address later. But by all accounts, production ran smoothly and stayed on schedule, which is rare in this industry. Which I know is a low bar to clear, but still, they cleared it. So I, I thought to myself at this point, why might be this the case? So this is me theorizing a bit, so feel free to um, you know, correct me if I'm, if I'm real off base. But I feel like there are two reasons for this. Number one is that this was a prestige project for Sunrise. First Gundam is a cultural institution. It's not a passing fad. The mark it left on Japanese pop culture is indelible. I mean, there are life-size Gundams in Japan. Um, so that's saying something. And Sunrise knew they had to do right by fans and critics. There was no need for market testing. People would turn out. They knew this. They just had to meet expectations. So kind of they, they gave the production a blank check. And Yasuhiko was one of, or is one of the few, and this is a potentially problematic term, but few auteur animators left. Um, he was in his early 60s at this point, and he was given a lot of freedom when it came to overseeing the production. He was allowed to set his own schedule and chose to work from home. He recalls, quote, I didn't really have to appear in person at studio work so often for my production duties. And I even thought, is it okay for me to have it this easy? And I am truly appreciative of the staff for making it like that, end quote. 
And this isn't entirely without precedent in the industry. There are some animators turned directors whose reputations precede them and who, in their older age, are granted a blank check when it comes to production. You know, Yasuhiko in a recent interview said, Tomino can do whatever he wants, he gets it. And I feel like Miyazaki's the same way, not to say that people working at Studio Ghibli aren't overworked, because I'm sure they probably are, but according to a recent interview with, um, I think it was, oh, uh, Megan, who's the producer at Studio Ghibli? Toshio yes. Suzuki, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, there's a recent interview with Suzuki, and he, he basically said, you know, we're in a slower pace now in Miyazaki's final film. We're churning out, like, two minutes of animation a month, which is a more relaxed pace, potentially, than other animators have to hit. And it seems like Gas is now one of them. Megan, do you think these assumptions are fair on my part? No, I don't think they're unfair at all. So it's interesting comparing Origin to the other series, too, just because it, it's cool that I could actually talk about a mecha show with a production that wasn't backbreaking. I'm sure Yas had it easier than some of the other animators, but it seemed like they got to go home on time, and they were given a lot of freedom when it came to setting a schedule. Now, before production officially kicked off, the team was selected to produce the Aris's Shars custom car commercial for Toyota. Um, this was kind of like a, t- like a test run for what the origin would become. Taniguchi did the storyboards, and by the way... Um, I'm going to throw this name around. It's not Goro Taniguchi of Code Geass ah. fame, but there are quite, there are a few other producers who worked on Gundam The Origin in addition to Tomioka. Tomioka was the executive producer. He kind of oversaw everything from up on high. There were more in-the-trenches producers who worked closer with the major creators. Uh, Did did the CG for this commercial, and Nishimura did the character designs. According to Taniguchi, the know-how from doing the commercial fed back into the production of Origin. It was a proving ground for the team. Also, don't confuse this with the second commercial. There are two Toyota commercials that were made by the Origin team. Have you two... These always appear on Twitter. Um, Have you two ever seen this commercial before? I have. And I was going to say, let me say that already I have issues because it is canonical fact that Char cannot drive. He can... That's true. He can true. ride a horse. He can pilot a mobile suit like nobody else. Cannot drive to save his life. I was gonna say, I the the, the commercial. I don't know. I I thought I had seen this before, but thinking back on it, I think the commercial I saw was the gas station one with Char. Oh that no! Was a different commercial. That, that was more recent. That was more recent. Okay. I think, right? Yeah. That that was making the rounds on Twitter not too yeah, long ago. Yeah, that was like for like a gas station membership card, not a car itself. Yeah. 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 Those commercials were not good looking. Yes. <laughs> no, uh, I mean, having now watched though the this particular commercial, uh, my my brain is just screaming because <laughs> I have it in the back of my head that all of the uh, all of the the auto manufacturers were descendants of World War II arms manufacturers, <laughs> and I don't know if that's actually true for Toyota. That might just be that might be just Nissan Nissan, but um, the idea of like conflating. A, uh, a World War II arms manufacturer with Xeon is just like, I, I can't help but internally scream. Uh, I don't know if I have my history right there, but that's where I am. I was going to say, that's why I was laughing, because it seemed a little too on the nose. Yes. <laughs> An unintentional commentary, I'm sure, on the part of the mm-hmm. origin Also, team. I'm just desperate to know how many people actually bought that Shark custom Toyota. I was thinking about like, that, too. I've never driven a Toyota who's before. Who's that much of a nerd in Japan? I will say, out of all the... I think I had a, uh, a thread on this on Twitter months and months ago. Out of all the Char-related merchandise, I got to go to bat for the Char-Aznable 
GameCube, I've, the red I've one. I've seen that. I saw mm-hmm. something of that at Gundam base. And yeah, that is pretty cool looking. Ooh. It is very cool. I think it's also very rare. The almonds, I like the almonds too. <laughs> I like almonds, period. They're the Amaro and Char almonds. I wish I got some when I was in Japan because I think they were out when I visited. Oh, you don't want the, the sardines that were advertised with Char Asnable? <laughs> I also like sardines. I, I also, and PMC knows what I'm about to say, I also like anchovies on pizza and so does PMC. As do I. Oh, good. I thought we were gonna get. I thought we were gonna be, get like a, like a, a grunt of disgust because usually when I say I like <laughs> anchovies on pizza, people get very oh, angry. Anchovies are so good. Now I want a, a char like a custom char pizza, whatever that would entail. I wonder what char has on his pizza. Lots of pepperoni because it has to be red. Mm, true. It's got to fit stylistically, and there'll be if there'll be someone on the origin team that makes sure those pa- visual patterns are realistic and consistently displayed. While we're talking about bad Char merchandise, I have to shame Asus uh, for putting this thing into the world. Oh, good God! Uh, the... Oh, wow! Yeah, there, the, the there's an uh, there's a Gundam version of it too, which looks way better because I think uh, white white with like blue and yellow accents is just much better for a computer. Um, but this is <laughs> this also exists and it's a nightmare. Oh God! It's like <laughs> that looks like uh, a Michael Bay Transformer. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say it looks it, like yeah. someone mashed up a, a Gunpla and Alienware computers tech. <laughs> mm-hmm. Especially yeah, when just- Alienware computers were super ugly back when I had one in like the early two thousands. <laughs> for com- for comparison, there is the much more aesthetic uh, Gundam. Yeah, uh, I, guess, I guess if I had to choose one, it would be that one. Yeah, that seems like someone would like. I I feel like I'm at at a trade convention on the show floor, and there's someone who's like really knee deep in swag, and they're like get real excited to potentially winning one of those at a <laughs> raffle. So in our chronology here, we're still it's still early days in the production of Origin. Originally, Sunrise and Yasuhiko were unsure how Origin would be released. Would it be a television show, series of films, an OVA? But once Tomino began production on G Reco, a slated 26-episode TV series, it was decided to release Origin as an OVA so as not to compete against themselves. Sadayoshi Fujino, the sound director, remembers initially that there was nervous atmosphere in the recording booth those first few days when they got to the recording stage. Quote, It felt like the cast were all tense. I guess you could say, or bewildered. After all, Our images of First Gundam are so strong, and I think there are things we can't separate from that. Of course, some industry legends returned to reprise their roles, most notably Suichi Ikeda as Shar and Toro Furuya as Amuro. There were other veterans who had previously worked on non-Gundam works by Yasuhiko, such as Mayumi Tanaka. You had an interesting note here, Megan. Oh, yeah. Uh, You had a note here noting that, you know, even Shuichi Ikeda had to audition for his role, and that was no less true for uh, Mayumi Tanaka, who plays little Babby Kazfall in the first episode of the Origin OVA. And there was apparently some pushback about this casting, because Tanaka, of course, these days is known as Luffy. She's been voicing Luffy for over, god, 20 years now. But this was not her first time working on a project with Yoshikazu Azuhiko. She played the protagonist, Yu, on Giant Gorg back in 1984. She also played a supporting mm. character in Arion. So, Yaz had her back. Oh, cool. Nice. I like when I could track the pedigree of directors and the voice actors they hire. I think that's always super cool. But there's plenty of other talent, too, and some of that being new talent. 
like Tetsuya Kakihara as Garma, Megumi Han as Seila, and Sayori Hayama as Lala. Megan, you have any thoughts on the Japanese voice talent here? Because I'm not familiar with all of these names. Uh, Sayori Hayami is a pretty popular voice actress. She, she's in all sorts of stuff. Um, the one that stood out to me is Megumi Han. She's also a fairly popular voice actress, but Gundam is also kind of family work for her because her mother, the late Keiko Han, was the original voice for Lala. Oh, cool. Interesting. I have heard Megumi Han's name before. I'm not... I know there are people in the anime sphere who are like really interested in st- this stuff. I think that's cool. But some of these names um, often don't stick with me. So I'm always interested to learn new factoids about them. Now, initially, again, we're still early on in the production. It was decided to adapt only a part of the prequel material, which the team referred to as the Chronicle of Shar and Sela. The team spent three years working on four episodes that run approximately 60 minutes each. Sunrise announced the origin adaptation to the public in 2011. Part 1 released on February 28, 2015. The subsequent three parts came out in roughly seven-month intervals, with Part 4 hitting store shelves on November 19, 2016. There There were also theatrical releases of each volume timed to celebrate the franchise's 35th anniversary. And I imagine these theatrical releases were pretty well attended, I believe, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I want to ask this now. Were there, I know this aired in the, this premiered in theaters in the UK, and we'll talk more about that with our guests next week. Did this get a release in America, Megan, do you know? Like a theatrical no, release? No, unfortunately. Which is a shame, because I would have been there, certainly. Yeah, same here. I was unsure about that. But by all accounts, The Chronicle of Shar and Sela was a success. And by The Chronicle of Shar and Sela, I'm referring to those first four volumes. The public responded enthusiastically, and sales were strong enough to immediately convince Sunrise executives to greenlight another two parts to complete the prequel material. However, there was one controversy that interrupted the relative tranquility of production. I'm going to give the proverbial mic to Megan at this point to talk about that controversy. Yeah, because as you noted before, the production was relatively drama-free, except for what happened in the wake of Episode 4. Because while Imanishi had done his part to promote the first three origin OVAs, uh, people who were watching the industry noticed that he did not make any on-camera appearances in promotional materials uh, leading up to the release of the fourth installment. And upon its release, they noticed that Imanishi's uh, credit as director had been removed from the credits. There was just a gap where it had been in the previous three episodes. And according to the Sakagaburo blog, there is a good reason for this. According to their source, uh, Imanishi has a history of having a drinking problem. And he appeared visibly drunk, in their own words, at a pre-release event featuring not only members of the press, but also a number of executives from Bandai. And this offended them so badly that... Not only did Imanishi get kicked out of the director's chair for the uh, other remaining episodes of the Origin OVA, but he got kicked out as the head of DID. And since then, he has not worked in animation save for one credit on one episode of Twin Star Exorcists, where he worked as a storyboard artist and a unit director. Nowadays, the only way he gets close to Gundam is as working as the writer on the aforementioned Gundam 0083 Rebellion manga, which he's been writing for Gundam Ace since 2013. 
good, good. I would say good sleuthing on uh, internet fans' parts because they found that because I, I did the I did the search and they found that pretty quickly. The fact that he was if they didn't do that sleuthing, this information might not be like public knowledge that the director left midway through. And I feel like there's a precedent for that for a variety of reasons when you're talking about the Gundam OVAs because of course always the director of OA the Mass team got a tragic car accident midway through. 0083, like we talked about earlier, had a director change, and that might be the only three. But those, like the three big OVAs, had a big director change. Like I feel like it's this War in the Pocket, and maybe like Thunderbolt, and that's it as far as like having consistent directors through multiple yeah. volumes. As a result of Imanishi's dismissal, Yasuhiko now had to take the reins as director and became even more hands-on. Despite the shakeup. According to Taniguchi, one of those producers I mentioned earlier, and remember, this could all just be PR speak, but he's commented that production on Part 5 was undertaken with fresh enthusiasm. Given that the final two volumes chronicle the Battle of Loom and the Space Colony drop, the scope and scale of the production increased dramatically. More battles meant more mechs, and more mechs meant more animation, and more animators. Thus, a bunch of new people were brought on to meet that demand. Takashi Miyamoto who worked on Akito the Exile, uh, a Code Geass OVA, was hired to help with mechanical designs, and Hajime Katoki joined the project full-time as a storyboarder and unit director, which I found interesting because I knew I know of him through his work as a mechanical designer, but I did not know he also did storyboard work and directorial work, which I think is super I cool. I find the inclusion of Miyamoto to be interesting because I don't know many people who liked Akito the Exile. I was pretty, pretty meh as far as Code Geass spinoffs go. But one of the few highlights anybody mentioned was that the the nightmare suits in that had really cool designs and it had really good mechanical animation. Yeah, I've seen some uh, bits of animation. It does look good. That featured those horse yes. designs, right? PMC, you might remember this because when we were talking about the Code Geass DS game, I'm not sure if it was Miyamoto who did it, but there is an exclusive mech in that game, and it was I think the mech was called Equus. It was a horse mech. Yes, I believe that's right. Yeah. Yeah, pe- people are pretty lukewarm. Like, even Code Geass fans are pretty yeah. lukewarm on Akita <laughs> Exile. And Code says Geass something. fans will defend a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man. Brings me back. With the extra help, the team met their production goals. Parts 5 and 6 released in September 2017 and May 18th, respectively. Again, the response was positive. A far cry from how Arion was received all those years ago, if you think back to our first episode. Unfortunately, we in America and other Western-speaking countries didn't have to wait long to travel back to the year 0079. So we're, we're working our way to the present. And I want to pause for a moment uh, at the year 2012. So remember, Bandai Entertainment, which was Bandai's U.S. branch that had licensed and localized Gun for years in the United States, ceased operations in 2012, which was another casualty of the recession, the waning anime market, and the DVD boom of the like mid-aughts was really cooling off at that time. And fortunately, at this point, Right Stuff stepped in and inked a deal with Sunrise. They picked up the license to basically the entire franchise, including a lot of Bandai's previous releases, and also got the rights for future Gundam media. 
One of the last Gundam releases that Bandai did was for 2010's Gundam Unicorn. And for that release, they hired the New York-based studio. And how do you pronounce this, Megan? Is it, is it usually pronounced like N-Yav or N-Y-A-V Post? N-Y-A-V Post. That's what I thought. Uh, to make This name uh, pops up all the time. They've done some other stuff recently, too. They're like a big dubbing studio, right? Yeah, they're basically the last dubbing studio left in New York City. At least for, as far as anime is concerned. Mm. That release and that dub were well-received. So Right Stuff and Sunrise not only brought that dub studio back to finish Unicorn, but also dubbed the Origin OVAs. All right, so now we're going to talk about some uh, voice actors, English voice actors. This is fertile ground for PMC. He, he loves connecting these dots. Um, so right off the bat, um, any takes on these casting choices? I'll throw this to PMC first because he's like a – he's not to call him out here, but he's a dub guy. I know you have a lot of experience with dubs. Yeah, so – I, I was looking through these, and I think there's some really interesting choices. Uh, I, I have some fun trivia questions for y'all, but first I, I just wanted to comment on some of the uh, the principal characters. Uh, in particular, uh, Char slash Edward uh, is portrayed by by an actor who's uh, who's been pretty busy. I think mm-hmm. recently um, he was the so Shido in Persona Five, the, the corrupt politician. Oh yeah. Uh, Apparently he's been the recent dub voice of Lupin. Uh, this is Keith Silverstein I'm talking about. Uh, but like his, his, it's interesting because if his characters are either like a, a lot of villains here. Uh, he was also uh, full frontal in Unicorn as well, which is which interesting, makes sense. right? It's a funny, funny connection. Oh, I know, I know. Uh, so, so that that stuff is is pretty good. Um, and then some other ones that I wanted to uh, connect the dots on. I mean, there's a unsurprisingly and maybe this is a comment i mean sometimes i i feel like there are more voice actors than ever before it, it, much less is the case that it feels like it's the same group of people there is a ton of overlap with uh, code geass <laughs> in this i mean keith himself is uh minami from code geass do you remember minami i uh, he was one, one of the minor I black only watched half of the first season so no <laughs> no I, well i mean honestly even if you'd watched the whole thing you might not i mean i look i looked this up <laughs> So, uh, so a lot of interesting ones. I think the, oh, the one okay, that's yeah, gotcha. the one that I think is most relevant to me and Stephen podcasting is the casting for Garen Zabi. Ah. I, I bumped on Liam O'Brien too. Yeah, Liam O'Brien, who we loved as Lloyd in Code Geass, uh, has also done uh, other things. You know, is the voice of like a lot of like Marvel characters and recent Marvel stuff. Uh, Shakespeare and Saints Row got out of hell. I have to mention that every time. <laughs> um, but, you know, those roles, a lot of like nerd roles, are not really Gear and Zabi uh, material. Um, and anyway, so from there, let's. I want, I want to launch into these trivia questions that I, I found. So, because we already sort of touched on some of them, I think, when I was trying to hold, hold my cards. So, I wanted to check if any of the actors from the original uh, dub of the TV series were reprising their roles. And as far as I could find, that didn't happen. No movie actors from the movie dubs, the infamous 90s movie dubs, reprised their roles either. Uh, There is one person in the cast that I could find who has voiced their character before. Hmm. 
Any guesses on who that character is? I, th- I kind of gave it away earlier in the mm, podcast. That's a good question, because in that case, it would have to be from the video games, but I have very little experience with the video games, particularly like from like the 20th century stuff, when it's all just like Gundam Evolution and like Dynasty Warriors spinoffs and, and Super Robot Wars. It's not from a video oh. game. Hmm. Trying to think who you mentioned, who you name-dropped earlier in the pod. So, it is a character from... And it is actually, it's pretty interesting to do this trivia bit because I, I think I had missed this when I was looking through the notes, but it is a character who appears in Unicorn. Oh. So God. Kevin Collins is the voice of Kai Shiden in both Unicorn and The Origin. <gasps> oh. oh. Okay. That makes sense given the, the history of the, dub, the dubbing. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that was an. Now I will say there are two actors uh, in the origin dub cast who have previously appeared in first Gundam material in the movie dubs, the original movie uh, dubs. That's right, the VHS release movie dubs. One of those is easy. Is it Kirk Thornton? Yes. Um, Kirk Thornton. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was, I was going to guess Wendy yeah, Lee. Yeah, you know, actually, I was surprised that Wendy Lee. I mean, I, I almost wonder if I missed something because I know lots of times, like Wendy Lee, for example, was like an additional voice in Matt Cross Plus. So I, again, I'm hedging all my wording <laughs> because it wouldn't surprise me if, if Wendy Lee was involved in that. Um, now, Kirk Thorne, of course, is Ramba Rao in the Origin. Also, I believe does some narration. Okay. Uh, for the Origin as well, in the movie dub, he was Lieutenant Reed. Okay. And Ortega. Oh. Interesting. I've recently got my hands on a copy of that, and I want to watch it one day. Maybe PMC, we could record like an audio track of that. Oh dub. dear, yeah, like a commentary. That would, that would be good. Well, it's really interesting because I really want to get to the other act. The other actor who appears in both the movie dub and the origin is uh, Doug Stone, and Doug Stone is Jim Burrell in the origin, but he is the movie dub and OHMS team voice for Giran Zabi. Oh, you know what? I forgot oh. Giran's in OHMS team because it's such a small part. He's giving a speech, yeah. right? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And I think that's later in the show when things get a lot more serious. So that is interesting. Now, I want to flashback for my last trivia question. This is actually really funny because Megan mentioned that there was some family business among the Japanese voice cast. And uh, by by spending too much time looking at voice credits, I've discovered that there may be a family connection in the English voice cast as well. Uh, there is an actor who portrayed this character in the movie dub, and that actor's son portrays the same character in the origin dub. Oh, wow. Does it involve the Pappenbrooks? Because I, I it's hard to think of many father yes. and sons that went into voice acting, and the only ones I can think of are Bob and that, Bryce you, Pappenbrook. You are exactly correct. Uh, Bob Pappenbrook voiced Ryu Jose in the movies, and his son Bryce voices him in The Origin. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know there was that like huh. connective tissue between the earlier works. Because I'm, I am very warm on the ocean dub for 0079, and I do miss a lot of those voice actors, but it's cool to see them paying attention. Well, no, it's the, it's the movie no, dub, No, I know, too. but I'm trying to think. Like, I'm, okay. I, I think it's cool that they do pay attention to like, the legacy sometimes, if mm-hmm. legacy, in fact, influenced these decisions. Yeah, I'm very curious uh, if, it, if it did. I have no idea, but, uh, but I, once I saw that, because at first I saw the common last name, and I was like, are they actually related? You know, quickly turned up, of course, yes, they are. So, uh, but yeah, that was my, my little, my little notes. Uh, I don't think there was really 
anything else too too interesting uh, that I wanted to note? Let me just make sure. I think there was one other. Uh, Wendy Lee is Cecilia's Abby. I feel like is going to haunt me. I'm really really concerned about that. Also, the fact that Astraya is uh, Veronica Taylor. Uh, Steven, do you know? Do you recognize Veronica Taylor? The name the sounds familiar. I can't attach it to any roles. She, there are two important roles that I feel like you'll I appreciate. Do. One is Ash Ketchum. Okay. Oh, that's right. Does she do mm-hmm. work in Valkyrie Profile too? Yep. Yeah. She's Freya. Oh. Valk- that was the other one I was going to say. Yep. <laughs> I, I knew there's a lot of connective tissue between Valkyrie Profile yep. and the Pokemon dub. Yeah, that's wild. So. Yeah, no, that was that was a lot of fun, fun, fun dots to to connect here, uh, but I think that's all the trivia I'm gonna do for now. Yeah, I think that is that's. Oh, you know what? Okay, just for Giant Robot FM, there are two <laughs> actors from the the OG Giant Robo dub in here: uh, Mike Pollock, who is Issei and Shizuma mm. in Giant Robo, and I think there was there was one other. And then also because I know you're a Pat Labor movie fan, uh, Doug Erholtz, who did uh, Asuma Shinohara in oh. the Pat Labor movies, is also in this dub as a, as one of the other actors. Let me just see quickly again who who that was. Oh yeah, Ortega. Actually, yeah, it's Ortega. Interesting. So yeah, lots of lots of dots to connect here in terms of stuff that we've covered on the podcast. You said the first giant Robo dub, right? Uh, no, no way! I do actually. I listened to it because I checked it, and I actually the second dub. I think I think I meant the second okay. dub because I think the first the first dub is the one where they swear a lot, right? Yeah, I do think uh, <laughs> NYAV did the dub for Giant Robo, the second dub for Giant Robo. Yes, this is also it's based in New York, and like yes. Megan pointed out, they're one of the few studios still around, mm-hmm. or the only studio still around in New York. Megan, do you have any? Uh, yeah, but opinions there are about the dub? Uh, oh, uh, I. From what I've heard, I generally like it. Like, I appreciate NYAV's posts. They do good work, for, good work for Gundam. And I appreciate, uh, because they're a union shop, they do, uh, have a over, lot of overlap between notable New York dub actors and notable LA dub actors. So it's nice to see some of that old school talent like Wendy Lee, like Kurt Thornton. I also, I'm glad you guys appreciate Liam O'Brien. I feel like he's always been kind of underrated as a dub actor. And this is probably one of his most prominent roles in recent years. And... I mean, he he is suitably theatrical, but also very chilling as Garen, from what I've what I've experienced. Yeah. And uh, also uh, coming back to Keith Silverstein as Char, like I know, you know, Stephen, you mentioned you're fond of those ocean Love dubs for book. the original series, and I know, yeah, uh, you know, even people who aren't necessarily keen on those dubs really like Michael Caspa as uh, Char. And what I've heard of his performance is also very good, but I I feel like Keith Silverstein is. It is more than equal to the task. Also, I, I appreciate them casting an African American actor as you know, very blonde, blue eyed Char. That that's yeah, good I casting. I look Yay forward for to diversity. hearing his voice more because I only watched episode one so far, so I want to track his performance throughout the six episodes, and of course, track it as Char ages too. Again, we're very close to the present at this point. Uh, th- I didn't know this bit. This is interesting um, from a collector standpoint. Right stuff and Nozomi and. Megan, correct me if I'm wrong here. Nozomi like handles the production, like a, they're a subsidiary of Right Stuff who handles the production of their licensed anime, right? Um, Right Stuff handles most of the physical releases, but there are some that are kind of done d- more directly through Sunrise. And what you're about to talk about is one of those more direct ones, where it's it's basically just releasing the Japanese release 
with English. I had no idea like these English things text. existed because I was curious. It was like, all right, I know you could go on Right Stuff right now and buy two Blu-rays and you'd get all of Gundam The Origin, but these seem like recent releases. Were they releasing concurrently with the Japanese releases? And the answer is yes. Uh, right Stuff... Yes. Did you pick these up by any chance? These. They seem very pricey. No, no. As, as tempting as they were, you know, with the... Because they're basically the size mm. of, like, a vinyl record. But they've got, the, you know, the nice Yasuhiko art on the box. They've got booklets with some of his storyboards and, you know, art cards and that sort of thing. But the thing is, they were a hundred bucks a piece. And as much as I love Yasuhiko and much as I love the origin... I don't love it for a hundred bucks an episode that much. The closest I've ever seen to getting near one of these physically was on my honeymoon in Japan where I encountered uh, the Japanese release of episode one at a book off and it was mm. still like 60 Did, bucks. Um, they released all six though, right? So they kept it up until the end in the States. Interesting. Yes. I've, yeah, I've never seen one of these in the wild and I have never like seen like tweets about these releases either. I feel like most people who do own origin on physical media own the more recent releases um, volume one collecting the first four episodes and volume two collecting the second two episodes. It is tempting to track these down from a collector or even a archivist standpoint just because there's more material on these releases. And the the I, I'm a, I like what Right Stuff does with Gundam, but I wish there was more supplemental content released on the disc. I'm not sure if they have access to the, any potential supplemental content and they do release extras occasionally but the releases are very bare bones and i do love me some blu-ray extras yeah at most i've seen images from some of the storyboards from some later episodes that are just shown mm. up randomly on twitter but that's it as we've talked about numerous times on this podcast before sunrise is no stranger to drawing as much blood from a stone as they can and once again they took their cues from gundam unicorn that seven-episode OVA has been edited into 22 TV-length episodes under the title Mobile Suit Gundam Unicorn RE0096. Is that RE's disregarding there, or is there, like, a special UC term there? I'm not sure. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, in my, yeah. my legal brain is he's in Ray, which is just, like, in the matter of. Yeah, but uh, that's probably not probably not what they mean. Yeah, you're dealing with like <laughs> Japanese titles can go either way. Sometimes I'm thinking like of a, a Nomura name for a Kingdom Hearts game. But these aired in Japan over the spring and summer of 2016. It would go on to air on Adult Swim in 2017, the first new Gundam series to air on the programming block in over a decade. Have any of us turned on Cartoon Network in the last ten years? Because I haven't. But I want to get any. I know PMC probably hasn't, so I'm leading up to. I haven't had cable TV in the past. Yeah, 10 years. I should. I should just skip PMC entirely when I ask that question. <laughs> Megan, have you checked out Cartoon Network recently? Uh, only, only occasionally mm -hmm. on vacation. But yeah, I mean, it, it is notable. Admittedly, this is this was my introduction to Unicorn. This is how I watched it on Crunchyroll. But yeah, the fact that they they went out on a limb, despite the fact that Gundam. Outside of, like, some of those original UC OVAs, like War in the Pocket and No Eighth MS Team and, like, some of the movies, like Char's Counterattack, Gundam did not have a great track record on Cartoon Network beyond Wing and G. So the, the, the fact they went on the, on this and that it was successful is notable yeah, unto and itself. I, I do know that it, it definitely drew some fans from younger generations. Unicorn's on Netflix now currently, correct? I, I've seen it advertised, I uh, think. I know don't... Origin's not. I... I 
I think you might be mixing it up As with a, narrative. Yeah. Which is very different. Unicorn definitely was on Netflix at some point, though, because I watched it on Netflix. So I'm not... Yeah. Uh, Probably, okay. Origin yeah. has yet to be released on Netflix, as far as I'm, I know. I do know... I think it was on Hulu for a time, but I could be wrong in that. Yeah. Yes. And it was on Daisuke back in the day. Yeah. Everyone's favorite streaming site, I have questions for you about that, Megan, because like, Megan will know about this when I discovered this. Now... Clearly, this approach worked before, so Sunrise would give the Origin OVAs the same treatment. They cut the six episodes of the OVA into 13 22-minute episodes that aired in Japan from April 29th to August 12th, 2019. It was called Mobile Suit Gundam, the Origin Advent of the Red Comet. It was time to commemorate the franchise's 40th anniversary. Interestingly, the television broadcast featured three new openings with music from the band Lunacy these PMC, did you end up checking any of these out? Because I did. Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't get a chance to. But I just noticed the the name of the band, and that's just a really good name. Good good wordplay there. Yeah. Um, I I thought they were cool. Megan, have you ever seen any of these OPs? Because they're they're pretty stylish. Yes. Uh, the first one was kind of cold on. I'm not sure if I saw the second, but the third one, the yeah. third one, I freaking love. I'm not sure the director's name. He also did the second opening for the TV edit of Unicorn, and I didn't think that particular style worked well there, but it works brilliantly with the opening he did for The Origin, which is scored to Lunacy's cover of Beyond the Time. And speaking of hot takes, I kind of prefer their version to the original TM Revolution one. I think the original is kind of overproduced, and TM Revolution's voice isn't quite up to the task. Yeah, I was a big fan of TM Revolution uh, when I was growing up, uh, attached to the shows, which are now verboten. But um, I I, I could definitely see where you're coming from with that. Now, Adult Swim picked up broadcasting rights for the Origin TV cut, which ran concurrent-ish with the Japanese broadcast. It premiered at 3 a.m. on July 7th, 2019, and finished its run on October 6th. PMC hit us with that classic Adult Swim promo. Universal Century 0068. Chaos reigns as the zombie regime exerts its control. But the one-year war is still years away. What in the world is that thing? Mobile suits are merely in development. But so is the scorned future leader of a new movement. He has a keen mind. He's a special boy with many unique qualities. Tensions rise. Your father was assassinated by those Zabi fiends. Allegiances are drawn. Join me! Stand with me! On the battlefield! And sides are chosen. Who are they? The enemy. And I'm gonna take them out. The story that started it all reimagined and gorgeously updated. Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin premieres July 6th at 3. Suit up again. For the first time, only Toonami on Adult Swim. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, at, we got good vibes for the end of the podcast here because I do like, cla- even though this aired recently, I'm actually, I'm surprised just how recently this aired because we're getting very close to when we started podcasting. Um, and it's wild that Origin had aired so closely because when I think about Origin, and I haven't seen it, I didn't see it when it came out, but I think of something that came out like five, eight, almost ten years ago. And the idea that it premiered on Adult Swim so close to the present moment is kind of chilling. I got to wonder who's watching 
Gundam The Origin, though, at 3 a.m. Someone's, clearly. You know, I have to tell you, being in the world of, of Twitch streaming and knowing people, uh, you know, teenagers and people in their 20s, the answer is there are still a lot of folks on DGen hours out there. Mm. I know you you and me, Steven, we're, we got pretty <laughs> pretty set hours, but let me tell you, uh, as, as someone who ran an interview podcast and tried to interview someone on the West Coast at 7 p.m. Eastern, and they were an hour late because they hadn't woken up yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's my, studi- my students sometimes, some of my students radiate that energy when they walk into my classroom at 7.30, <laughs> uh, having just gone, you know, having just watched The Origin at 3.30 in the morning or something like that. You also have to keep in mind that the TV edit did stream simultaneously with this Japanese release on Crunchyroll, so there's probably more than a few people mm, who watched it that true. way. And let's actually double back to Daisuke. You mentioned it earlier, that streaming service. Megan, what is this? Because when I saw this again, I thought Megan must know what this is. Okay, for those who are not aware, Daisuke was a short-lived streaming service. It was supposed to be kind of a collaboration between a number of anim- major animation studios, including Sunrise, to stream shows that had never been uh, streamed before on any other service. Unfortunately, it didn't turn out very well. Um, if, if people know it at all, it's just that place you had to go to watch like One Punch Man and Iron-Blooded Orphans for a while. But they, Sunrise was probably the kindest to the site. They did put up a fair bit of catalog stuff that hadn't been streaming up to that point, and some of it has not been streaming since. Yeah, and that, that went... That disappeared a while ago, right? Oh, yeah. That that only lasted for a few years. I miss those early Wild West days of streaming when you could get so much free content um, on the internet, on, like, legitimate streaming services. Like, Hulu back in the day, so much weird stuff you could oh, just get for free. God, Hulu was crucial to my early days as an anime yeah, fan. Yeah, there's still a lot of Gundam content on Hulu, surprisingly. Yeah, but, I mean, that that brings us to the end. That brings us to the present. And again, I say this is the end of our origin history, and I mean it when I say that, but the legacy of Gundam the Origin might be Kukuru's Dome. Like, we have a lot to talk about, potentially, whenever we get to that future history episode, which will really be like an addendum or a part four to this three-part series. But before we officially wrap it up, do you have any thoughts about either returning or visiting origin for the first time? PMC, I'm going to throw it to you first. I'm really excited because of what I said before is that, and this is in regards to the writing, but I tend to find these um, these bits of like fragmentary tragedy to be very compelling. Um, I'm I'm hoping that this comes across, you know, based on what we've discussed so far in terms of the production details and the production history. I get the impression that it is going to be very focused on playing up the inevitability of the one-year war the personal tragedy of many of the principal figures uh and that it will be um you know the good kind of prequel material there there is another uh another setting out there that has a lot of bad prequel material (laughs) and i I want some good prequel materials i'm hoping the origin delivers on that for me (laughs) pmc we're gonna be podcasting about obi-wan soon i hope you're not calling out my boy look i that that show you know what that show should be called that show should be called Ben Kenobi. <laughs> I, I stole that from another podcast, but uh, now it's in my brain forever, and that's how I'll think of that show. <laughs> but I was thinking that to myself, too, because I, I have a feeling one of my takes at the end of Origin will be, I think I'm not going to have a controversial take that um, breaks from the norm when it comes to Origin, but I do think that I'm going to come away from it thinking, you know what? 
this was decent. This was a decent prequel, and comparing it to like recent prequel material, like I know it's you can't compare them one to one, but something like the prequel films, Star Wars prequel films, or something even like The Hobbit, I feel like the origins is is going to make for much better prequel material that's in better conversation with its source material than those works. Even though I'm sure I'm going to have some issues with it. What are you, Megan? Uh, I've only ever watched it halfway through before, so I'm going to be really excited to watch that second half for the first time, kind of compare and contrast the difference between Imanishi as a director versus Yaz as a director, uh, to watch more of the dub, and basically just see how the OVA handles that last half, because as I mentioned before on the episode about the manga, I was kind of cool on that part mm-hmm. of the flashback arc, so... Let's yeah, I'm curious goes. to see, too, how well the CG animation has aged for the Battle of Loom um, at the very end, as opposed to the Battle of Loom at the very beginning of Episode 1. Because quite a few years have passed between the production of those two episodes. Yeah, and that brings us to the end. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Um, g- give the audience a little taste, though, because you will be returning with us yet again in the podcasting chair to talk shop about Gundam The Origin. And what episodes will you be joining us for? Yes, I will be uh, back, because you can't keep me away, for episode three, and which will be the, the one we, we really get into, the whole Garmin Shar thing. And then episode five, uh, where we'll be able to talk about a little more directly the, the changeover in directors and how that affects the OVA. Very much looking forward to it. And also, before we officially wrap this up, promote your work. Let the people know where they can find you online. All right, if you're not sick of me yet, uh, you can read my manga reviews at the Manga Test Drive, which is mangatestdrive.blogspot.com. You can read my longer reviews and essays at Renaissance Jose, which is renaissancejose.blogspot.com. You can follow me on Twitter at brainchild129. And if you like what I do here or elsewhere enough that you want to give me money for it on the regular, you can do so at Patreon at Megan D. Megan, real quick, I want to talk shop about manga. You recently read through Spirit Circle Volume 1, right? Yes, and I I feel bad for being this late to the party because I loved Lucifer and the Biscuit Hammer. And yeah, everyone who hyped it up was right. Because I have all six volumes, PMC. I'm referring to this because (gasps) I bought them because we potentially will do Planet With in the future. We all have a mutual who is very interested in us covering Planet With, and we are excited to potentially cover (laughs) Planet With. But in preparation for a potential future history episode, I picked up the six volumes months ago, and you mentioned that a few of them are going out of print, so I'm, I'm happy that I picked them up. It's not so much to go... Well, yeah, they are kind of going out print. I believe it's four and six. Six is just nigh impossible to mm. find at this point. And the, the others are going away. And unfortunately, this was equally true for Lucifer and the Biscuit Hammer. Like, those... They slowly went out of print, but now it, it's kind of tricky to find them now, unless they... Seven Seas chooses to reprint them ahead of the anime. Yeah, so whenever you're going back to older manga, that's the thing. Like, you'll like, be excited. Like, yeah, I, I found this for the cheap online, but... I got you know volume one, volume two, volume three, and then you get to volume four, and that's like seven times more expensive than the other ones. Uh, yep, that, that'd be the struggle's life. real. All right, PMC, hit him with the promos. Absolutely, Stephen. Now, of course, I should mention again all of those helpful addresses that Megan did an excellent job of communicating orally will be available in the show notes. And furthermore, if you want to support Giant Robot FM. And the work that we do, uh, you can rate and review us on your favorite podcasting services. Leave us a glowing five-star review with Purple Pros on iTunes. You can also find us on Patreon. 
We are at patreon.com slash giantrobotfm where we have various supplemental podcasts. We recently launched our first simulator episode on Armored Core, which treats Armored Core in much the same way that we treat uh, the works that we do here on the main feed. I have other material as well where we talk about uh, just sort of things that we're up to. Uh, just recently recorded a bit about Spirited Away, and I talked about bicycles. So if you want to hear that, you can go over to our Patreon and check that out. Want to give credit to Dwarf S for the graphics that we use, and give credit to Fretzel hashtag Fretzel on uh, for on Twitter for <laughs> for the music that we use. Megan must be wondering what the hell that means every time you bring it up. Don't worry about it. It's a very very inside joke. <laughs> and now, as, as, whenever PMC ends an episode, I'm always frantically like looking through my notes, like what can I? I don't want to put anyone on the spot to end it, but I have nothing. Does anyone have a fun closer? It's like something to clinch this episode channeling all my energy to pmc spirit bomb style i've i was really trying to to find something i was hoping i was scrolling through my my dub notes to look for something really really cursed so that i could share that with you and oh, no. um and i just don't i just don't know if i oh well you know what uh you know as kirk thornton in the role of <laughs> Uh, you know, Kirk Thorne, of course, is the narrator for, for Gundam The Origin. So I'm sure once we get into the podcast, we're going to be discussing his narration as well as his work as Rambaral. But Kirk Thorne's most important message for you comes straight from Zenosaga, which is Bonsai, Bonsai, I'm a boozer. <laughs> <laughs>